this is Tony Speaks and this is my lovely wife, Kim. We are the founders and co-creators of the lifestyle brand and podcast, Becoming Disciplined. Every week we meet, learn from, and share best practices with highly disciplined men and women from a variety of fields and endeavors. Follow us on our journey. Veteran Outdoors author, William W. Forgey, MD, is a full-time practitioner of family medicine and is also a member of the Board of Trustees of the International Association for Medical Assistance to Travelers, a fellow of the Explorers Club, and a past president of the Wilderness Medical Society. He is the author of many wilderness medicine and camping books, including Wilderness Medicine and Basic Illustrated Wilderness First Aid. He is a Vietnam veteran, a former instructor at the JFK Center for Special Warfare, and was awarded a Bronze Star and Army Commendation Medal. Acting as the medical advisor to health teams on over 40 trips to Haiti, Dr. Forgey's team responded to epidemics of cholera, Zika, and chikungunya, as well as treating multiple other infectious diseases. But this week, Dr. William W. Forgey is becoming disciplined. Today on Becoming Discipline, we interview Dr. Veteran Outdoorsman and author William W. Forgey. Welcome to Becoming Discipline. We are so honored to have you. Well, thanks so much for having me here today. All right. Well, Dr. Forgey, before you educate us and share your current story, we believe that all superheroes have an origin story in the comic books. That's how it goes. Uh, if you could share your origin story, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, I was raised in Gary, Indiana, which is a steel working area of northern Indiana. My father worked in an oil refinery. My mom worked in a uh, you know, clothing store downtown. And I went K through 12 at a, at a high school in Gary, Indiana, graduated in 1960. And then I went to Indiana University for four years, graduated with a degree in chemistry. Then I volunteered for the Army because that now you're taking us to 65, which is the start of the Vietnam uh, problem. And there was a heavy draft on. So I figured, well, plus I was out of money. <laughs> so I got through college anyway, but then that was it. So I, uh, I enlisted and went to OCS, which is a part of an enlistment plan they had. They call it College Op OCS. So you go basic and AIT infantry, then you go to infantry OCS. So I got my commission in the infantry. Then I was assigned randomly after graduating uh, OCS to a, a psychological operations unit at Fort Bragg. And you one year stateside and you rotate to Vietnam in that era, which is what I did. So I spent um, my time in Vietnam with in the same business, psychological operations, ended up spending 30 months total time in Vietnam. I came back to Bragg as an instructor at JFK Center for six months in PSYOPs. Then I went into med school, uh, you know, years of med school, four years, uh, two years of grad work, and then I uh, became an emergency room physician for five years. And then I went to private practice. Then 10 years ago, um, I was, uh, one of my patients was elected sheriff of Lake County, Indiana. And he talked me into agreeing to become medical director of the jail. So at that point, I became full-time medical director of a 1,050 inmate maximum security prison. Whole different life. Um, however, <laughs> uh, 
but that's my life in a nutshell. Now, the other part of the nut is that I used, I used to do an awful lot of wilderness travel and outdoor travel and international travel as, as part of my occupation. I had a family physician practice, but I was a uh, very heavy travel medicine practice. You know, I gave out course, yellow fever shots and all types of stuff. And, and basically, however, traveled to many of the places in the world that my patients are going. So I've had on-ground experience in Africa and in Asia a lot and South America places. So I, I was able to um, basically have a pretty good feel for what people were getting into, whether they were doing sophisticated business travel or back adventure travel. And those are quite different animals. And I was very active in major international organizations that dealt with travel medicine. And nationally, I eventually became president of the Wilderness Medical Society, which really is an international group of people interested in remote area care. Um, and I've been on the board of directors of an international medical organization that deals with infectious disease and travel medicine issues for almost 30 years. So my practice, while it seems constrained, being a family physician, I'm still dealing with a lot of peculiar international travel issues. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that, that was uh, my life in a nutshell. That's very good. It's, you, you seem like you're uh, the, uh, the what's that, that commercial, the world's most interesting man. You seem like you've done it all. <laughs> well, I, I was blessed that I got to do a lot of things and I structured my life so I could do it. You know, a physician it can be really tied down to the practice. For, and I was private. So that means you're either seeing patients or you're not making money. Got ongoing expenses. You're going to have your office, office staff, your yellow page ads, or whatever. You know, all that goes on. All this guys picking up the, the laundry. <laughs> Nothing stops. But you leave for a few weeks. So whenever you leave, you take a hit financially. So I always plan for the day I started my practice. Actually, I went to the ER for five years. I said my contract. I, I want a month off in the winter, a month off in the summer. So I, I was really interested in Arctic stuff. So I, was doing, I wanted to do a lot of winter Arctic work and plus the summer. I love the summer in the north. So I, I did it. And that was part of my insistence. So when I go into private practice, now the hit's very personal. Now you don't work, you don't get paid. So I, I planned that I'd be gone six weeks a year. So now my trips aren't long. I can't go for two months at a time, which I was doing before starting the ER. I'm, I'm stuck now. But what I could do would be part of expeditions. So I, I was a physician for expeditions where I would join and leave. And some of these expeditions lasted several years. So I kind of pop in and out, you know. Um, like in the middle of nowhere, I would join for a while or, or, or be involved in them setting up a major expedition, help with the launch, maybe join at the end or join. I did that a lot. Mm. My travel was very interesting because I'm dealing with interesting people. I might be doing physical exams in a person that's, you know, elderly guy who's traveling intercontinentally by canoe. You know, I've done that right. and, and diagnose things and figure out how to get it treated and not let the expedition falter. Uh, so I was, it's been interesting. I've made it interesting. In other words, I took what could be, in, you know, a 12 hour a day plus office job and turned it into a 
more interesting occupation. <laughs> <laughs> now, I hear two vocations in your bio and your voice. If you had one choice for the rest of your life, would you practice medicine or explore nature? If money wasn't an option. Uh, practice medicine. Medicine's that's the greatest adventure on the planet. I mean, you are really, most, most things are very mundane. Most problems people come with. I remember a doctor telling me one time that 90% of anything that comes in the door is going to fix itself without you doing anything. About 15% of the time, you make a difference. And 5% of the time, they're, no matter what, you, you're going to screw it up. <laughs> you're going to make it. <laughs> so, so. So beware! <laughs> After creation, you're you're accomplishing very little. <laughs> right. There's a few times that your interdiction actually means a lot. It means a lot to people coming to you. They're spending the money. They're seeing you. You're you're doing something for them. But does it really mean anything in the timeline of their life? Probably not. You know, it didn't save their life. They, they were going to get over whatever. In fact, one of the things in your private practice, someone calls in and says they're sick, you better get them that day. In three days, they'll be well. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, take credit for what happens, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, so but, but practicing medicine is emotional. You, you are involved in people that, that 5% of the time or that 15% of the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's impressive. I mean, you're, you're making huge differences or you're, or, or you're failing to do something that's phenomenal. And, and it's, it's very, very, uh, it's, it's an incredible occupation. Um, yeah, so I, and I, because when I was in Vietnam, I said, you know what, screw all this career. <laughs> I'm going to become a doctor, you know? And so uh, I, I just had that moment where it's, I'm going to do it. I don't care how hard it is to get to Mexico and just, you know, I'm changing my occupation. And, um, and so I did. Now, what habits or disciplines are needed to make a great physician? You know, well, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think there's a, a few things I try to talk to medical students about that they, they're all stars in the, you know, stars in their eyes, happy they got in, we float on air, we are admitted to Mexico. All types of reasons to want to go. Maybe it's a family uh, tradition, or maybe God knows. But somehow you get there. When you finally get there, you really walk in um, quite thrilled. Now there's a matter of a reality, and I and I like to say, you know, there's certain things you have thought of, and you've got to balance your life. And and one of them is you're going to have a family, so you have a spouse, and and boy, that that's. Successful marriages are difficult in, in in the medical field. It can happen, but it's not done in any field. <laughs> it's work, and in in the physician field, it is potentially challenging, in my opinion. Um, but but be balanced in that, and 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 now how do you, so some of the challenges, for example, in the old days, uh, I mean, you've had you've got needs. Um, you're seeing patients all day, and then you're required to be in a certain number of staff meetings at the hospital. So you're, ta- you're off for that. And there'll probably be dinner at those things. They all serve, you know, the cafeteria from the hospital serves you know, dinner. Nothing big, it's nice. But the thing is, you're gone all night. <laughs> and and that's what is that? Maybe a meeting a week. So you start stacking up that nonsense. So maybe you're going to be on a volunteer board or something. Pretty soon you're not home at all. <laughs> right. so, 
disaster. So part of that whole discipline is looking at that spouse, spousal and familial responsibility. And then you've got to look at your financial situation. Financing is one of the best, the most difficult disciplines on the planet to be financially disciplined. In other words, how much debt can you afford? And, and, and when you get out of med school and you get that first contract, I've seen kids do this when they got out of OCS and suddenly got their commission. I go down and buy an MG, you know, a, a sports car. <laughs> and, you know, you just, oh, okay, you know, you, you can't do that. You know, you, you've got to, um, so suddenly now you're in a different social structure. You know, you're, you're, you're a doctor and now you, Maybe your spouse wants to join the country club. <laughs> you know, you've got some financial things that you better think through because there's trouble times ahead, and and you know, it's, it's, and you probably are saddled with a debt that's astronomical. Some of these kids that get out of Mexico, they have two hundred thousand dollar debt. That'll suck you dry. So how are you going to then? So you so you have a spouse that has helped you get to med school or has been with you maybe through some of the undergrad work, the great goal has been reached. <laughs> you get your residency. But you owe 200 grand. <laughs> you can't enjoy anything for a long time. So but be ready for it. If you're ready for it, you say, this is what it's going to look like. And, and stretch it out. But what can we do to enjoy ourselves? You know, I, I always like that saying that the life Life should be about the journey, not the destination. You know, you, you've got to enjoy, you've got to take comfort and enjoyment out of that struggle. And, and so part of that whole discipline of finance is figuring out how you can enjoy it, but still meet these responsibilities. The study, the amount of study required. And one of the fun things once you get out, you get out of med school and get in some of that other testing you have to do is that you can read what you want to read <laughs> and now you can, you can read anything i was always big on history but you really can't do it when you're in med school and you're doing so much of this other study that you have to do so you then now you can, then you can read anything but there is a discipline to studying and that you have to you will not get that far if you hadn't figured that one out but that's tough for kids to learn that when they're Pre, you know, grade school, late grade school to get into that discipline of study. And it is, uh, my mom and dad had, you know, they pound it, you know. So it's good to have parents have discipline because, you know, it made me um, learn my spelling lessons. And I, you know, they found out I'd get a little behind in math, you know, boy, there I was with so the flashcards around the kitchen table when they got off work. <laughs> and, uh, so they, that learning discipline and then also kind of figuring out the only way I'm going to mount anything is probably using my brain. So I better figure out the skills that I need or where I'm going to go to do it. I mean, you can have that same with an athlete. You, you realize, hey, for me to accomplish it, I got to develop a skill or this skill. And then you put your energy, maybe not so much into your flashcards or math, but you, you know you need a certain amount of it. Uh, you want to maybe get into college or go further with your sport, but you're going to need a certain amount of knowledge, but you've got to hone that, that, that athleticism. I, I've traveled internationally with some world-class athletes, and the discipline and the lifestyle they have is more severe than anything I went to with med school. Mm -hmm. So 
athleticism, anything requires that discipline. But well, then again, it, you get back then as far as this life and the discipline of it, besides your financial family and the fact you're, you've got to work long, if, depending on the job you choose, and that could direct where you want to go in medicine. If you want finite hours, you're going to pick a, a career path, maybe anesthesiology, where you've got finite hours you work and you're not on call. But you got this where, in my mind, I was on call all the time, go to the hospital all the time. So you know that, you know, that interferes with a lot of social activities. But then you have people replace you when you're gone. And that was the other big thing. You got, you need that time off. You need that ability to relax. And you know, for me, it was adventure in the wilderness. But it's also that downtime. It, it, to me, that was downtime. Um, wilderness activity, international, interesting stuff was part of what kept the rest of it working. But I did it so much that I made a name for myself. And I realized that certain patients would leave me is I'm gone six weeks a year. Now, if they happen to need you twice in a year or three times a year, it happened to be when you're gone to them. So I Lose patients. I figured, well, not only do I lose income with six weeks a year, I'm going to lose about maybe 15% of my patient load. Because I was popular, I had no problem replacing those people. I mean, I, 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 would, I was working nine-hour days, and you know, <laughs> I was only <laughs> not work 10-hour days. <laughs> and right. lost patients because of this schedule. And, and it was always scheduled. I never took more, but I didn't take less. Mm -hmm. yeah. Doctor, uh, I've noticed I've had to uh, I've had to shepherd two parents through, you know, I've had to see two parents uh, pass in the medical system, and yeah. I've also uh, through church affiliations, I've had to be at the bedside of a lot of people who pass, and I noticed something about you that you're a people person and that you, you know, you kind of are engaging with folks, but I have noticed a lot in the medical community where. Uh, some doctors they they're they're very detached, and some of the things that they say and do uh, can kind of be devoid almost of uh, uh, humanity. I hate to say that, uh, but my question, I guess, is: Have you noticed it in the medical? I guess I have a three part, a two part question. Have you noticed that in the medical community? And then, do you think it was your military experience that made you different, or you think you were just made different than a lot of doctors that are out there? So I noticed in my medical school class that a lot of the kids there were what I considered um, academic closet cases. They, I mean, they basically studied, and they studied fanatically, and they were really not necessarily weren't people people. And 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 as you get into the occupation, and you start looking at the profession when they're advanced, say the surgeons, the various types of surgeons, there does seem to be certain types of people gravitate to certain parts of medicine. And for example, when you see an orthopedic surgeon, you almost bet that person, that, that man or woman was an athlete. Oh, okay. <laughs> and they like their doctor, they got interested in orthopedics. It, it just, now, eye doctors haven't all been hit in the eye. <laughs> yeah. But eye surgery, it's very peculiar that people in it tend, you know, that's a, it's the most advanced medicine and surgery in the planet. Is, I mean, they're doing things that are fantastic. So you, you just see people, I don't know, they gravitate toward, you know, like fine, you know, things. Uh, 
you, you, you see, um, I had a lot of surgeons tend to be more technicians. They, they go in, they do the job, and they really don't necessarily do well with people. Now, if you're going to be a, a Hollywood plastic surgeon, you're going to have you're going to have a good bedside manner. Right. <laughs> you're going to be like, you're, yeah, you're going to be like a lawyer. You're going to have to sell yourself, right? <laughs> That's the guy for me. He's going to get. He's going to get you know. He's going to fix my nose. You know, I, I want that guy, right? And right. So certain doctors have to be salesmen. The family doctor has to be a humanist and a humanitarian. Now, if you get jaded, that'll show up. You burn out. I mean, it'll show up. You can't get worn out. Where, but I've always enjoyed. It. I, I remember when I was at the ER, I would have, I would leave at nine o'clock, and we had a team of other doctors that came in at nine. And I would hear some of them interacting with patients as I was overlapping. The guy would say, come in at nine o'clock or so with a bad cold. And the doctor would be raving and say, why are you for a cold? Well, in my opinion, a guy wants to spend that money to come in. Why is he doing Because he's working. He's got other, other things. And he, he's got to keep going, cold or not. And plus, he's worried that he's got something worse than a cold. He's for a reason. But, you know, some of these guys are such big shots. You know, like, oh, I'm, I have to crack your chest to put a tube in. That's good. But if you come with a cold, screw you. You know, I mean, well, no, that's not the job. <laughs> the other thing you get in trouble with, I think, is the doctor is getting mad at the patient. For example, you, you see a person who had you know, an alcoholic. So I, I've seen an awful lot of alcoholism here. And... And it, the same guys come <laughs> over and over, and they're nearly dead. And you got through it, and then it kind of get it can get you mad when they come back. But you know what? It's not our job to judge people. Our job is to repair them. Now, you tell them how not to get in that mess, but they go and get in the mess anyway. Fix it again. Not mm. job, but I see doctors get mad at them. I, I had I, I had an orthopedic team I did uh, some rotations with once in Southern Indiana, they refused to take care of motorcycle victims. They said, if you rode a motorcycle, screw you. I'm not taking care of you. <laughs> and that's, you know, they were, and I said, oh, you know, what? You know I mean? The guy's all busted up, but they didn't like it. Yeah, so, I mean, so you get doctors that can become a problem, and and uh, but they're they're unhappy, or they figure out what makes them happy, and they have their practice. But to be a, a, a family physician, you've got to be pretty broad spectrum, and and what you find um, in your level of tolerance. I mean, one of the biggest problems that happens is people trying to use you, mm. come to you and want the Vicodin prescription. Well, maybe they need it, and maybe they don't. The next one minute and 33 seconds will be reserved for a commercial advertisement. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time it is in your time zone. At least on my time, it's, it's after church, and I don't know about you, sometimes after church, I'm just lacking energy. Courtney. Yes? Can you get me... Can you get me a uh, one of them vitamins that your mama takes? There you go, Daddy. 
Let me try one of these. Tastes pretty good. My God, my God, Q! What do you have in there? It's made with vitamins B9 and B12. It's it's great for my overall health. It's made with pectin, a unique fiber in fruit peels. It's simple and delicious. Kim, did you know that more people search apple cider vinegar in the U.S. than tea? Google has 15,000 people searching that word every day in the U.S. alone. Kim, how can more people get this gummy? If you want to support the podcast, or if you're looking to improve your health, you can order these gummies at https forward slash forward slash go.goalie.com forward slash becoming discipline. Don't forget to use our promo code becoming discipline. People are coming, or they're coming to you for a work release. Right. Maybe it's valid and maybe it's not. Now you gotta become the police chief for the school system writing writing notes for kids. I mean, for some doctors that irritates them. Or they come in with their sick pay form and it's three page or maybe 12 pages long. I don't that is amusing. Now I sit there and fill it out. I mean, <laughs> not give you an hour behind, but I'll fill the damn thing out. But the thing is, it, it's just part of the job. And that's important to that person. Now, I can, if I don't agree that they need it, it'd be a hard ass. But, but I mean, you got to look at it from a compassionate viewpoint, what's going on here, and, 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 and know that you're, well, your time's being, your time's got your schedule screwed up. And now you're filling out this work release form. <laughs> or, you know, ah. But uh, and doctors have quit over there. I have seen that, and they burn out. They burn out because of paperwork. They burn out because they have to call an insurance company and get permission for medicine. Wow. It, it, it really irritates you. Or to try to get an MRI, and then once you do, well, do this first and do that. All these phone calls. To me, it's just, well, there you go. <laughs> you got it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Now, if you could time travel... <laughs> and advise young William Forgey before he deployed to Vietnam. He's getting off the plane in Vietnam, or he's getting off the chopper in Vietnam. What would you tell him? I, I wouldn't want to interfere with the fabric of time. I was so bloody lucky. Uh, I wouldn't do anything. I mean, I, I, I would scare me. It, it scares me of some of the opportunities I had that I did not take that I'm glad I didn't take. I could have had... Any number of good things or terrible things could have happened, but it turned out as well as it did. And how blind, bloody luck. <laughs> you gotta be ready to seize opportunities, but most of, so much of what happens is just is having mentors that pop up in your life. I had them in the army. I had wonderful people all through my life that just seemed to kind of be there. And it's huge, and and yet, where would you be without that? I, I mean, I think people who are highly successful lose track of the fact that they didn't get there based on their innate ability. A lot of it is that luck, that intersection, humans, and then what your job is is to provide that intersection for others. And try to pass that on, and I tried to do that, but. And sometimes you really worry when you do that because you wonder. I mean, one of the greatest nightmares of my life was 
one of my friends, I used to race bicycles in, in high college. So, you know, a little 500, we call this as a bike race in IU. And that's a very big dedication. You know, you're riding 35 miles a day and 100 miles on every weekend day, wow. every Sunday. And you're, I mean, you're doing it for years because this is a big deal. Well, one of the kids that became a good friend of mine, he's a little bit younger than me, I got in that college op OCS thing and I said, Jerry, that's what you ought to do. Well, <laughs> I, also, I thought he died in I said, if I talked to him into going there as a college officer, he got killed. There is a pretty high casualty rate in the young officers in there. I, when I went to the wall, and it took me a while to go to the Memorial Wall in Washington, for his name, and find it. And then I have to tell you, about six months ago, I found him. He's alive. He didn't go in the army. <laughs> oh my goodness. But I had worried about him, not all my life, but every now and then I think of this poor guy, I think, Jesus, I hope, I wonder what did happen to him. <laughs> yeah. and, wow. but, for, but for a long time, I thought he'd gone in. And, wow. and I couldn't, you know, had all this contact with him and just poof. Even when I came back from Vietnam, I visited him and his family in, in New Hampshire. I mean, but all, some, all contact was lost. He died or something and he moved and just, I thought, oh, why? I wonder. Now, it's three things like that. So necessarily trying to help people doesn't mean you've really helped them. <laughs> but, I, but it does. But in my life, I've given a lot of people a lot of advice. And it, it, it kind of weighs on you because you hope you're correct. That's good. That's good. It's probably the most intelligent answer I've ever heard when I asked that question. Uh, you learned psychological operations in the military. Are there any takeaways from that training that has that you found helpful in your everyday life or well, that my audience could find helpful? Well, it, it, oddly enough, it did. I mean, PSYOPs, PSYOPs is fascinating. And, and it, it was in its crudest form. You have a military operation. You go and you drop leaflets on and say, hey, you want more of that? If you don't give up or, or you're telling them what to do or you're telling them why you did it. Very crude, but in the proper hands, psyops is more important than the military, than, than military action. And actually, in Vietnam, it, be, it became kind of an emphasis because we had a, there's about a ten to one kill ratio in Vietnam of Americans versus North you know, the, the, the enemy. For every that meant for every ten enemy who gave up, we saved one American. We also kind of saved 10 enemy too, you know, but, but the thing is you saved 11 lives, but one of them was American. And no way of knowing what the wounded deal would be. So PSYOPs did have its emphasis because of that. And so we had this program of, true Hoi program of giving up. And, and that's as, as opposed to Hoi Chan, which is prisoner of war. Capturing is different than giving up. And so, but what are the basics of it? Well, it's very complex. It's color imaging. It's all types of stuff that goes into language and differences of culture. And I, it has meant a lot to me. It, it, it's, it caused me, plus my travel, to be very, very aware of cultural differences. They're immense. And, and um, yeah, it's, 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 it just, Completely surprised you. And that's what you really teach early on PSYOPers and civil affairs people 
hey, in that culture, this this means this. <laughs> you know, don't crush your blades in front of the door, or watch, you know, shaking with your left hand against your butt wiping hand. You know, all this nonsense. But, but it's, it's cultural. But there are fine points in American culture. Certain things you don't do with other people, and or you're aware of why they do what they do. And you become culturally aware. So the biggest thing in psyops is culturally aware. Then the other has got to be the, the, the medium, the, mess, the, the method of giving a message. Sometimes it's best to call someone. Sometimes it's best to put on an email. Sometimes it's best to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but the message, how it's delivered, I've used that to great uh, advantage. Uh, and when I don't pay attention to it, at my peril. <laughs> so you, you kind of learn a, a lot about the presentation you know, sure. and how important just stupid things are. They mean a lot. Sure, sure. Now, yeah, so pretty uh, darn interesting. And the other thing, you can't go to a more interesting reunion. Veterans mm-hmm. say they cannot go to a more interesting reunion. Um, for one thing, we've, we've been able to accumulate younger, younger soldiers in there. So the men and women that are in the current active military are members of this organization. It's a, it's a psychological operations veterans association <laughs> inviting them to active duty. And um, we have roundtables. I mean, it's most of these, so our, we're, it's not like a drunken blowout at all. I mean, we, we basically have discussed, we'll have someone there that was at Kosovo and what happened there and how the radio stations were doing this, all this incredible stuff. And obviously, you know, with the Twitter and all that, that is psyops. That is psyops on steroids right. stuff and, and figuring out who people are and who their friends are, who their friends' friends are, what they think about, you know, do they, do, what type of fashions do they like? You know, it doesn't seem like it's related to politics, but it, but it eventually does all slurp together, right? And, and yeah, that's all psyops, basically. And so psyops is incredibly important. Now, who controls it? Well, the military does not. You know, we, 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 the military psyops is very restricted in who they are, the, the, the uh, audiences. But the concepts of psyops are not restricted. And, and so it's a very interesting thing. It makes you aware of what's going on in these other, uh, like, the, like these, um, public influencers and everything. It makes you aware of the power, uh, the advertising power and the, and the political action power and the social act, uh, activation power, um, the, the, the ability for them to do it, danger of them doing it. It just lays it in front. That's powerful. That's powerful. As someone who served in Vietnam, is there a movie, book, or documentary that gets it correct? And, the, and let me share why I asked that question. Um, I I was in the D.C. area when the D.C. sniper was was yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it had a you know it, there were several of them where it kind of came close. So when the movie came out, it was really annoying to me because the movie got a lot of things wrong. Yeah. So is there a movie that you've ever watched about Vietnam where you're like they nailed it, they got it right? So. I, I, so everybody's story is going to be different. And I have friends that I have a good, good high school, grade school friend who went OCS before me, who won a silver star and two bronze stars with Valor, 
one of those bronze stars was in the battle that the movie that was eventually made called We We Were We Were Soldiers. It starred Mel Gibson, I think. I think that's it, yes, sir. Was it called We Were Soldiers? It was about the battle of the Quezon Valley. Yes, sir. No, Ashaw, the Ashaw Valley. It was the Ashaw Valley battle. And that, he liked that movie. He was one of the lieutenants in the movie. He, he was a lieutenant that, that was in that movie. I mean, he was played by someone else, obviously. Um, but that was not my experience, but he liked it. Then I, then I had a buddy who's a special forces guy who was in Vietnam, but just recently retired. And I think he liked Full Metal Jacket and I didn't like it at all, but it wasn't my experience in Vietnam, but I, I thought there were some unrealistic things in there. That, made no sense to me. When I first saw Apocalypse Now, I hated it. And then as I re-look at it, I kind of like it. <laughs> I think some of it is just, I hated it when I first saw it. <clears throat> but then um, now I don't hate it. Um, I don't know what to tell you. Okay. Tough, aren't they? Books. So I've been more interested in the books and the theory. I think a very, there is a very good oh boy, I wish I remember. So there's a, an officer who is a Marine, a Marine officer. And it was his book, which is out in Amazon, is called um, Just Bury Him. That's the title, Just Bury Him. It's one of the most shocking books you can read. And what was shocking to me, in part, was the lack of, this is third math. He's in third Marine amphibious force of an I-Corps. Along the DMZ, and, and they couldn't get, they could not get uniform parts. They couldn't get their boots. They could, these are rotting off them. They couldn't get resupplied. Wow. Scott um, figured out that at the military depot there, and I think in Benoit, that you can, I don't know if he, I don't know if he was near Natron, but he likely had to be at Benoit. So he was going, he was sending a guy in, they'd go there to the morgue. They stripped those uniforms off and throw them in a pile. And he was filling a truck with these uniforms and these dead guys and hauling them back. He did it twice. And I think the third time he got caught, he, got, he threatened to court martial the kid. So he had to get him out. And that stopped it. And he got in trouble for it. Wow. <laughs> but these dead guys. That's how desperate, how poorly run the army and the, the Marine Corps was at all levels. By that, I mean this poor guy helping his. His kids, but he also talked about it, it, some of the stupidity of the orders. <laughs> and you know, it's just like it makes you sick. And that book is a good one. Um, just bury him. Now, you were also an action officer at the Pentagon. What yeah, advice would you give to a young action officer listening today to make their tour in the five sided puzzle palace a little easier? So, well, I was a reserve um, officer, and I had a, title, a, a designation called a MOPDES, mobilization designation. I don't even know that exists now. But what it was was, in, in case there was a national emergency, even undeclared, if I thought there was a national emergency, I was immediately going to the Pentagon. No orders needed, just show up. And then they'd deal with it later. But, but the deal was I was activated once a year. And I could be activated for almost as much time as I had off from these various projects I had, med school and everything in grad school. And so I I was assigned a particular office, it was the same office that I had gone from Vietnam there on liaison trips to, it was all about PSYOPs. 
but it was beyond psyops, but it was really close to psyops. And, and so you're just basically the, like a paralegal. <laughs> yeah. The guy I replaces was a GS-13. So I mean, it's almost like a brigadier general basis civilian. But, but he was the guy in charge of making all these moving parts. And when he was gone, he was like, I learned so much. But, you know, I'm just I mean, back and forth. And he, I knew his field. He trusted me. He'd, he'd take off for weeks and then I'd be there. Um, but it's really, that's kind of like being a paralegal. But you're at a, at a DOD level or in that case, D8, Department of Army level. But it, it wasn't. But the thing that was fascinating me later is finding out how much I knew before other people knew it. <laughs> you know, for, well, when they resumed the bombing in North Vietnam, I knew about it months before the fighter, the bomber pilots, they knew about the morning before. You know, that morning. <laughs> I didn't, and we didn't know because we were putting things in place, but it was top secret. But, you know, you, you know all this top secret stuff, but most of, most of the stuff that's top secret doesn't really go anywhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's stuff that's interesting, but what does it mean? <laughs> Nobody until later, you know, oh yeah, well, you should. <laughs> <laughs> that was more important. But, but you meet a lot of interesting people um, and, and hear these stories and, and it's, it's just part of your life, you know. But I, but I think, you know, the, the, the advice there is, well, one, I, um, the only embarrassment I had is uh, one of the superior officers wanted to borrow my comb one day. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you, I've never had a dirty comb on me since then. <laughs> and, and the, I mean, it's just mostly, it's like being in an office, you're in an office, obviously, but it's, it, it helped me in my life because I'm, I'm in a peculiar situation. Here I work where I'm working in a jail and above me is a warden and above him is a sheriff. Would I go to the sheriff of the problem? Oh, hell no. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm going to go to that work. Well, being in the military for so long, I could come in this job as a civilian. I've been a doctor for 30-some years. You know, big shot doctor. Come in here. I know exactly how to behave. <laughs> yes, I've been in a similar situation. So you just pay attention to the chain of command, and then you have to figure out how to do things you're not supposed to do but need to be done but no one's going to give you permission to do it. <laughs> so that, those are those career-breaking things. They're either going to make you or break you. Know, they break you, you're done. But if they do it, you might get a bronze star out of it. Now, you're also known as an adventurer. Uh, what are three places in this world that you recommend that everyone should see before they leave this earth? Because uh, you've traveled the whole globe. Well, my favorite city in the United States is Bayfield, Wisconsin. And, and Bayfield's right on the edge of, of Lake uh, Superior. And it is, there's the Apostle Islands are right there. So depending on whether you like the wilderness, but it's a soft wilderness because you're only about 70 miles from Duluth, which, you know, Duluth's got everything that you want at well, most things. And then, and then you've got you, it's kind of like a yacht base. It's like got all the wealthy yachts. So that means you've got nice restaurants, right? So you got bears walking down the street and you've so you got wilderness. To me, it's kind of an intersect between civilization and wilderness, Bayfield, Wisconsin. I just love it. But but internationally, Singapore is my favorite place. Um, but things to see, it's so different for people. That's why if you really start traveling a lot, you end up having a whole bucket list and they're radically different. Some will be, you know, uh, 
beautiful or, or intriguing cities. And then there's going to be, of course, wilderness areas, which really depends on what you like. I, I tend to like the north. Um, I thought I'd like jungle, and then I decided maybe jungle not. And I had to, and so immediately after I got out of, out of the army, it was all northern forest. <laughs> and northern forest is, um, well, you just don't have quite the crap that you have in a jungle. <laughs> you do have, uh, amen, amen. You, know, you got mosquitoes. They have black flies and you have the no them swarms, uh, but they don't carry as much infection. <laughs> sure, sure. That's so, I mean, I love the North, but for telling people, I, boy, I, I wouldn't presume to tell someone. I, I just, I, but I would say that's part of that whole lifestyle thing where I hate it when people work all their lives and don't do the things they think they want to do or see the place. So I think you should try to incorporate that into what. If possible, I know it's not. I mean, my God, when you're struggling to make a living, you're raising kids. How in the world are you going to get that trip to Ireland? You know, how are you going to do it? Well, guess what? <laughs> you know, uh, maybe you should drag them along. I mean, there are cheap. I thought you get some really cheap tickets. <laughs> you know, and um, maybe it's just yeah. Maybe it's kind of worth it every five years to do something, or maybe every year. You know, depending on what you're capable of doing. Sure. That out. I think I did tell someone recently, or not so long ago, you know, I don't know if I ever need to go anywhere anymore. I've, I've got, you know, I, I've got this smart TV and, <laughs> and we got Nat Geo. <laughs> More did I want? I just, there it is, right in front of me. Trust me. <laughs> and then if I want to turn it, I want to put it on pause and go to the toilet. I got a nice flush toilet. I mean, what more can you want in life? You know, you're, Right, 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 right. Now, now I got a tough question for you here. Yeah. Uh, and normally, just so you know, even though I'm a religious man, I try to leave religion off this podcast just because I want to be able to reach everybody. But you are unique because you're someone who has seen combat. You've seen a great deal of nature. And you're also someone who has an advanced knowledge of medicine and science. So in your humble opinion, based on all you've seen, does the universe have a designer? Do you, do you think we're designed or you think that this was a product of random development? Well, you know, if, I, I would think that if there is a designer, that designer would use natural phenomena to, to, to effect what needs to be done, what, what that designer wants done. So, you know, you, you, might, you might regard yourself as like an ant sitting out there in your driveway walking along and also you come along and shine a magnifying glass at us and, and melt it, burn it. Well, it's gonna have a hard time figuring out what exactly happened. It's gonna have a hard time figuring out who did it to them. It's gonna figure out, have a hard time figuring out how did it happen. It won't know any of those things. To even explain that this eight-year-old child wants to just try the magnifying glass, it'll burn an ant, it would be hard for the ant to understand. So how do you think you're going to understand if there is a master designer that can control all that stuff, that you're gonna know how to explain any of it. So I think science explains how things happen, but it may not explain why it happened. And, and that is then beyond science's ability. Okay. After phenomena, you see things happen, you can, you can Equated back to string theory and formation of a big bang, but what happened before the big bang? I mean, you're just in a realm that 
goes on forever, but you're not going to know why it happened. Okay. Now, what book, uh, and we try to remove religious books from here, what book do you recommend as a veteran, as a doctor, as, a, as an outdoor adventurer? What book has had, a, had an impact on your life in a significant way? I, I, I would say that well, it depends on where I am at in my life and, and what my current problem is or what, what my, where, where I am. That I, and that's really tough to find. A, there, are, there, are, there are books I find fascinating. You know, there, there's a, there's a, but it's just a, it's, a, it's a narrow section of my life. So I don't know if it, it, it affects it. I, I'm a history buff because history repeats itself for a reason. People behave in ways. Civilizations behave in ways. It's just, there it is. It's been there before. And so if you get a good book on history, um, that, that to me, um, and one explains civilization as it goes. Uh, I mean, it's, I don't know how you, you, you can judge anything if you can't read history. Uh, and I'll give you an example. There's a series of books out recently. Um, I think I might have died. We wrote them called, uh, it, there's two on the invasion, or should we say the conquest of the new world. And it's the conquest in the voices of the persons who experienced it. So, and so the first volume is about uh, uh, Columbus and Cortez. And then the next volume is about um, uh, the conquest of Peru. Zaro and, and the various species of the United States. And when you read those things, holy Toledo. I mean, <laughs> there's so much you learn about the original inhabitants and about these people that were the conquistadores. And it, it's just fascinating and, and about themselves. Huh? Uh, and, and it's just about humanity. You, just, you, you, you go, wow. Um, it's, you, so you take it out of Columbus, you could be completely down on the destruction. I mean, practically because of him, look what happened. Uh, the North American continent was practically denuded of humans. Millions died because of disease, not exactly his fault, right? But, but then the Italians got tomatoes. The Irish got potatoes. <laughs> These didn't exist over there. I mean, the impact of his original exploration I'm staggered by the impact. I mean, everybody's been staggered. But you, so you want to tear down pictures, you know, all the statues because he basically then caused, you know, the conquest of the new world, the destruction of all the natives, maybe even the importation of slaves. You know, blame him. Well, the thing is, that guy was one hell of a navigator and a genius. And, and um, you see how he had to manipulate that ragtag group of guys he had and get them through those expeditions. That guy's incredible. He was something. Now, good boy, bad boy. <laughs> I didn't stick that one in the corner. But you, so I think, you know what, to become less judgmental, the more you know about the person doing something. And, and, um, and, and so I think the more you read about it, I mean, you could look at anybody in history practically. And, and if you read, the more you read about them, the less judgmental you can be about that person. With certain exceptions. <laughs> certain exceptions. Right. 
Right. Now, uh, you recently wrote a book yourself, and uh, can you give us the title of that book and tell us what inspired it? Well, I've got about 30 books that I've published over the years, starting about 1970s, uh, late 70s, I started writing on, on nutrition, and my book, Wilderness Medicine, came out in 1979. The seventh edition of Wilderness Medicine came out about 2017, I think, and then and then all types of other books follow. I have a book in Campfire Stories, several editions of those. I used to tell Campfire Stories of Boy Scouts, you know, my scouts. And so I've, I've got a lot of books. If you just Google, if you look at me on Amazon.com, you see the current ones and you see maybe these used ones out there. But um, so the, the one you're talking about, I think is Prepper's Medical Handbook. And Prepper's Medical Handbook is basically... Um, well, it's based on my Willis Medicine uh, book, which was basically how do you handle, it's really for expedition medicine now. This is for people who are preppers. Now, the idea is you're going to be on your own. The grid goes down. You're on your own. So how do you get ready for that? Now, there's all types of things that you need to do. One thing, you're going to be ready for food and water and all that. That's not covered in this book. This is about the medical aspects of prepping. Now, ideally, if you're a prepper, you will stored away, squirreled away some things that might be useful during this prepping event. And, and that would be certain medications might come in very handy and, and various, you know, things, you know. Um, but in most circumstances in the wilderness, if you're entering a survival situation, some disasters cause it, which mean losing your canoe and all your stuff, or it could be plane crashing, or it could be whatever. And, and but you don't normally enter a survival situation in the wilderness intact. You're in the end wounded and probably with stuff missing. So what do you do then? How do you how do you think in a wilderness survival situation? The prep is in a different situation in some ways. I would think most prepping situation you don't enter wounded. But you may enter it with your stuff gone. Could be a flood that takes it out, could earthquakes, all types of stuff. But, or the grid just drops, and you know, big power drop or whatever. Now you got no heat, no, no water moving, nothing down. And, and then food chains block up, food disappears. And maybe medical care is overtaxed or doesn't exist. So now you got to handle yourself. That's kind of a different thing in the world where you're backpacking the stuff in. Now, now you can have more stuff <laughs> if you're in your house. But what if you might think, gee, the where I live could be a hurricane and I got to leave it. What can I take with me? So Prepper's got to think in two regards, of a permanent base camp situation or go bag or, or the mobile escape bag. And what can I take with me in a finite length area space? And then how long is that stuff going to last? And what do I do when it runs out? So you, you, you shouldn't go into an emergency situation with no supplies, but you may end up with no supplies. So what that means is, from a medical viewpoint, you're going to need to know how to diagnose a problem based primarily on symptoms. I'll be very little on the physical exam. You don't have a skill set there, but mostly on symptoms. And what would be ideal to treat it? And when should you, at all cost if possible, return to the grid? If you can't return to the grid, what do you do now? But don't do it on your own if you could have returned to the grid. You know? In other words, Here's the common sense delineation. And the wilderness, when do you fire off that radio signal for the $80,000 rescue? 
<laughs> when do you not? <laughs> in the grid situation, be, well, if for some reason you're off the grid, when should you return? Or there is no grid. Well, that option's not there. Here's what you're going to have to do next. Not the best problem. Not the best, but maybe it'll work. You know? So, look. And so the big, big bulk of it is how to diagnose. And then it's, well, now what do you do with it? Now, now that you diagnose it, what do you treat it? And then what, if you don't have anything left, well, here's the best you can do. Mm. Now, as someone who knows about prepping, but you also mentioned earlier about financial discipline, mm-hmm. how do you find the balance of being prepared for that 1% chance of something going wrong, uh, but then also you have the 99% chance that you got to balance your checkbooks, you got to pay your bills, you got to stay current with your 401k, you got to do all of those other things. I, and I, I just ask because I have, I, uh, I'm a person that likes to be prepared, but at the same time, I don't want to be so prepared that I go bankrupt going prepared. Yeah, so, I, uh, I, yes. And so I think for proper, when it comes to financial sliver of it, what you've got to do is set aside with each, not your 401k, you set aside a certain amount each time and have the discipline to do it. Now, it's tough. I mean, if you're barely making the rent and you're barely making food on the table, you know, thinking that you're going to put something aside, but, you know, the problem you're going to have is eventually lights will be out. You, you will eventually not be able to get to work and you'll be sick for a week, two weeks. And so that food supply disappears and it disappears. And I've, I've, you know, I've spent a lot of time in places like Haiti. I've been Haiti 40 times on medical service trips. There are people starving to death in places like that. I mean, literally. And the... In subsistence living, where you only have a day's worth of lentils left, um, it's hard to save for the future. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so to say save for the future, well, but if you see people living like that, you you realize. So I think the best way, grocery wise, is you just you always buy that buy two get one free or buy one get one free, and then you start rotating your stock. You know, I mean, you could you could without necessarily much more than you're spending on a week in an American situation, squirrel stuff away and then rotate your shelves. Right. Actually, I told somebody the other day, I'm afraid that my kitchen cabinets might rip off the walls because when when COVID first got started, man, I went nuts on that, like everyone else, you know. I have to tell you, when COVID first started, before it even became known, I already had several cases of toilet paper. Right. <laughs> it was there for COVID. I didn't know COVID was coming, but man, I had the toilet paper. So bring it on. Bring on whatever you want. <laughs> you don't worry about the Russians invading the East Coast. I mean, <laughs> you got toilet paper. But uh, the, um, it, it's just, it, it's growing. Now, I, I, I can't, I, so COVID's here, COVID's going to keep coming and going and 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 we, we're getting through the supply chain blocks that, that's one of the good things that's happening now i mean hell you used to be able to go and, i mean you'd go into a store and it was empty i mean the shelves are bare now that is not the case um so we're, we're making we made great progress now it's expensive I mean, we haven't supply chain block hasn't broken out what we're prices are dropping I don't know if they'll ever drop, but but I think uh, we see progress in, in that area. So it is possible to scroll away supplies now, even in this environment, 
and I think it's uh, possible squirrel waste them out of water. <laughs> I always have these uh, five gallon jugs of water. They're worth the investment, right? And um, and then plus the normal water that you can buy really cheap. I mean, big gallons are too, too, too expensive, but I always have water. And um, I am, and, and then of course I have medical supplies. For someone with your experience, I wasn't gonna ask this question, but I think my audience would wanna hear from you, you being a veteran and all of your experiences in life. Um, as a doctor, and someone who knows about doomsday prepping, knows about preparation, uh, and who has traveled to these other work in these foreign lands and everything, uh, what is what is your take on you know people who are vaccine hesitant? What what, are you, what is your thought on that? Well, you know the, the most important thing for people is to know why things are being suggested, as opposed to. Um, Come in. So if you don't know why something's happening, um, and this is true in the military, I mean, if you just have an army unit and you want them to assault the hill <laughs> and they don't know why they have to do it, and if your only reason you, you're because you're being told to do it. So you have a well-disciplined society that just does what you tell them to do, like China. Well, that kind of works, but the better way is for them to understand why they're doing it. And you can get that. You can have a knowledge-based population that then can, but then instead of just telling them to do something, you can tell them why. Now, if they don't believe the data they're providing, you're kind of out of luck. <laughs> and if, if, if that becomes spooky to them, uh, then you got a problem. And um, if you allow that to happen, uh, if, you, if you, if you, and so what happened early in COVID was, I think we've, we've always realized there would be some terrible pandemic that came along to be like the 1918 flu influenza pandemic. It was terrible. Now we're almost at the same death toll as we had in 1918, but our population was smaller. And so it had more of an impact on us then. And it also occurred only about a year and a half or so, or a two-year period, and that was over. This will go on for a long time, this particular thing. We knew something was coming. And even but when it hit, it, it's such a shock that you, you can, because if you study history and pandemics, by the way, I do have a new book that's out now. I don't have a copy of it yet, but I know it's going to be, it's released now virtually on Amazon, at least the first of October. Maybe I'm going to be out for a few weeks. And it's on pandemics. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually called the Purpose Guide to Surviving Pandemics and, and uh, Bioterrorism and COVID because the publisher wanted me to do it. <laughs> and it's actually an expansion of one of the chapters in the Prepper Handbook. It's just that it, so if you look at pandemics and how populations respond to them, it's, it's virtually predictable what happened. What is a country going to do when something fierce hits its borders and starts penetrating uh, that doesn't potentially destroy the society structure and, 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 and the, uh, the whole uh, financial economic engine? It, there have been successful, when I say successful, 
some of the early epidemics in the Roman Empire. It practically destroyed the empire. Marcus Aurelius was emperor at a time when one of these major things hit, and a third of the people died, and yet it survived. He, his, it survived through him because he, he did the things he needed to do to, to um, replace to replace people in the administration, he had to basically take people who would never be allowed to be citizens and vote and made them citizens and gave them positions of power and structure. They replaced the dead people. <laughs> That's what they did. And, and uh, he kept the whole civilization. The empire survived years after him. The next big epidemic they had, they did not have that structure in place. It virtually collapsed. If you lose a third of your population, it's, it's hard to keep a civilization going. But Marcus really is good. Um, what do they do? Well, it's going to require all types of things. And, and we, we started, you know, with the closing of borders. But you, know, you, you can't close a border. In the old days, you know, of course, they had quarantine. You'd have a ship come in or you hear about an area that had plague and you seal off and any ships were kept out. But if one of those ships got on shore, then you're gone. Like the, there was a great plague in Marseille and they, they had quarantine areas. One of the ships, a very powerful merchant, wanted to dip his, his supplies off that ship. And it had been at a plague port before and they knew it and they had it isolated, but he had the power to get them unload, unloaded. Boom. It, it just caused havoc in the number of dead people. So they had techniques that they sometimes failed to use. We have those techniques. We have better. What we have an advantage over the previous generations is we actually know what this germ is. Hmm. We may not know how it got there. We may not know why it got released on purpose or accidental. We may not know if we helped finance. We don't know that. But we do know the germ. And we know how it changes. And we do know how it spreads. And we do know how to decrease that spread. And we do know how to improve your ability to survive it if you catch it. One of those ways is immunization. So it's all a matter of risk management. Okay? Being immunized, you will decrease your chance of being killed by it. Not entirely eliminated, but you've decreased it. Right now, they're saying probably by a factor of 24 times. So that means people get immunized, will catch it and die. But you're 24 times more likely if you don't get the shot if you catch it to die. Which is, oh, odds are enough to make you, some people want to get the shot, and others not. <laughs> so, um, and, and so we're getting the data out. Much of the most recent data comes from Israel because they immunized a large percentage of the population in certain issues very early on with Pfizer, basically. And they messenger RNA type of uh, vaccine, similar to Pfizer and Moderna. And, and now these people have, we've had a chance to see how long did that immunity last, how many of them got sick, and then Delta hit Israel. And then how are those people back from that era either being ill or immunized, how are they doing with Delta? And, and what, what do you do to protect that population? So data's coming. When the publisher asked me to write that book, I said, you're asking me to write the history of World War II in February of 43. We know how the war is going to come out. We just don't know a lot of the important details. We're going to win the pandemic. 
but it's going to hurt us for a long time. I mean, a lot of people die. I think now that we have good vaccines, you're going to see a lot of people die who didn't need to die. That's always a shame. But again, I, I, I've, I worked on a medical group here and I will say my office staff of six people who work for me, they're not, they're not medical, they're secretarial. I think one of them's been in Another five are afraid to get it. Now, I tell you, I got mine <laughs> early on. And, and now nursing staff, I got a higher immunization. But these are people, now we've had one, we've had one officer nearly die. He's on an extracorporeal bypass for weeks, and that's a heart-lung machine. Almost 10 days on that, but on ventilator for weeks and weeks. We've had a mental health person die, one inmate die, and we've had a bunch of skits. And now we got a way of preventing it, where it gives you that giant percentage time. You know, if it, if it was twice as likely to protect, that's 100% improvement. This is not twice as likely. This is not 10 times. This is 24 more times likely to protect you from dying. So believe me, some, you know, getting the shot will make sense for those that believe that is true and who um, also know that there is a risk you will get ill from the shot, but that the risk is greater from this damn disease. And, and this disease, I think there's only going to be two, there's only be one type of person in the United States eventually. They'll all be immunized, but it's either from catching the disease and surviving or getting the shot. Mm. And, and it might be you're going to get to do both. <laughs> get the shot and get sick. <laughs> but maybe you'll still be here. So right. it's, it's got to be two, two people, types of people, all immunized. Right. Right. Anyone escape this disease? They're not going to escape it. It's more contagious. This new Delta variant is more is as contagious as chickenpox. Wow. I mean, kid walks in the room with chickenpox and you haven't had it. You're going to catch it, and that's this disease. So you're going to catch it. Um, the, the only thing about flattening the curve, you remember all that chatter about flattening the curve early on. You don't want to overwhelm a hospital. Um, if you do, you won't have enough um, beds to treat your cardiac patients. You won't have enough beds to treat. You won't have enough oxygen. Places like India. In Brazil, they ran out of oxygen. If if you give it, if you flatten the curve and people that have don't want this shot will not hang out in crowds, they may not catch this disease for another six months or another year. And that means then there won't be that if they all got in a big group together and hugged and kissed, boy, I'll tell you, in another few months, you know, there won't be enough oxygen and enough beds. Just, just spread it out a bit. I mean, by that, by spreading it out, don't, don't all get sick at once. If you don't all get sick at once, we'll be able to handle it with the oxygen. And uh, in, in Brazil, even they ran out of uh, anesthetics, so they could intubate them and they had the oxygen for it, but they couldn't put you to sleep. You just had to struggle because they didn't have enough of the um, anesthetic. So just give the system a chance to handle the nightmare, and if you want to be part of the nightmare, just don't hang out in crowds for a while. <laughs> Give us a chance to get through this little bubble we're going through now. Certain areas of the country, like right now, my hospitals are full. My one local hospital is on bypass, we'll take an ambulance. The other is absolutely loaded, but we'll take patients. But if you're having a cardiac problem, 
and you're in that other hospital, you're going to go a long way before you, and you know, that's an, you're someone doing CPR on you and has to add another 15 miles to your trip. Well, you may not make that one. So it, the death rate will go up from all causes when you get into a mess with your, your hospital. So my plea is you don't get the shot, try to not catch the disease by staying away from other people. Mass cut it down some. Mostly it prevents the person with the disease spreading it to others, but to a percentage it prevents you from being. So, so I talked in the book about a thing called the infectious disease, a minimal infectious disease. You can take a certain number of germs. If I even, you can probably handle, with COVID, we won't know the exact number yet, but we're getting to almost guess it. Maybe you can handle 30 at a breath. 30 is one in a breath may not bother you. It might be 10. If you have the shot, maybe you can handle a thousand with a breath. So you just think that you can still get it, but but you can maybe handle a larger load. So people around you with it, you're less apt to get sick, but you might still get overwhelmed. Um, and if you're wearing a mask and my staff got it and I'm blowing out 10,000 at a time, and I'm not counting 68%, then I got so, you know, then we got so many thousand, and then you're wearing a mask, it cuts down a bunch, and then you've had the shot. Yeah, you're breathing some of that in. It's not all 100%. Might not get you sick. Uh, don't have the shot. You might not get the load that makes you sick, but you might. But you're more apt. So you just, everything's layers of protection. Layers of protection. Amen. Well, I took the vaccine. I took the vaccine, and I, it, sound, you know, you, it sounds like the, you're saying the stats are in the favor of the vaccine. But I guess my question, uh, one follow-up question with that, do you have any concerns about the long-term effects of RNA, of the RNA science, the RNA messenger vaccine? I don't have any concerns about it because the concern is the long-term side effects of SARS-CoV-2 or, or this disease in some people, and it's mostly the people that have got so sick they had to go to the hospital. Most people just mildly ill aren't necessarily having long-term effects. Some are. Some people are pretty darn sick too, you know, and some people just mild. You know what? 40% of people don't even know they got it. That's not a bad disease. You get it, not even though you have it, you know. Um, but that's what allows it to spread so much. And but if you go to a hospital, about a third of those people have long-term effects, either inflammation, like a cardiac inflammation, or the brain fog, or a number of other things, and pulmonary primarily. So in renal. Kidding, but that disease is a bad one. We picked a bad one here, and yeah, there there might. I think that we've got about so many millions of doses of the messenger RNA. Now, this is, this messenger RNA has been used before in a vaccine. It was used in the Ebola vaccine, which you know not many people got, but it, it was a big deal to to interrupt some of the Ebola. And when you look at some of the biggest, most horrible plagues in history. Some of those that knocked out like a, over a fourth of the population could well have been Ebola. Mm. Is not this thing that you don't worry about in our modern era. Um, however, because we know what the germ is, we know how to spot it, we know how to isolate, and that's when you really do isolate people. You're not going to argue about that one. And, and, uh, um, and even a layer of immunizations available for workers and people in contact uh, as a messenger RNA. I, 
the short answer is no, I'm not worried. Am I worried about, you know, after my second shot, I broke out in shingles. That's being reported from Israeli information. That's painful. I'm, I'm still numb. You're <laughs> my shingles. Will I get my booster? Yeah, because this disease is really bad. And if you're really unlucky with a shot, some people will be. Tiny percentage will be. A much bigger percentage will be very unlucky with the disease. And they will catch it. It's got an R naught of eight. You're not going to avoid catching COVID. You're going to catch it. That's, uh, good. That's good to know. That's good to know. That's going to happen. Well, Dr. Forgey, we can't thank you enough for coming on. You didn't have to do this. You didn't need to do this. We truly appreciate it. You have the last word. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? And typically, just so you know, our audience is 30 to 55-year-olds. I lovingly call them the Get Better Club because they're people who are trying to become a better version of themselves. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? Well, I mean, I think the most important thing is to understand that you can always improve everything you do, you know, but don't feel bad about not having, I mean, I, I have shortcomings, but I don't dwell on them because I have them and I try to improve and I realize I could have always done better, but I do think if I have one short thing to say is, is try to make the journey the important part of your life, not that end game. It's, it, it, I hope that you can do those things right now as you struggle, just trying to survive day to day to enjoy part of that day. It's, I just hope you can. And, and often that is going to require a mental place that you go, a religious place or a mental place that you can be, because it's kind of hard otherwise <laughs> you know, to, to gain that level of happiness if you enjoyed dr forgy you can read more about him and find his books at www.preppersmedicalhandbook.com